I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. With me, as always, is that mighty feud barbarian, Jeff Goad. And this week, we're joined by that roving band of picks that is the Appendix and Book Club patrons. Hello, Jeremy. Hello, Adam. And we'll see if Christopher rejoins us. Hey there. How are you guys doing? I'm, I'm All right. Okay. This week we're reading uh, Robert E. Howard's Conan the Warrior, edited by L. Sprague de Camp. Uh, let's start with what uh, editions everybody's reading this week. Uh, sure. And actually, real quick, just so our listeners know what's going on, our special guest was not able to make it this week. But before we record our episodes, we always get together with our patrons and chat about the books with them. So since our special guest couldn't make the episode, we're choosing to make the patron book club the episode this week. So you guys get to hear some of the kind of stuff that happens uh, prior to the recording of a normal episode. So um, Jeremy and Adam, I'm excited to have mm-hmm. you here. Peek behind the, peek behind the curtain. Exactly. And hopefully Christopher will be able to rejoin the call. He was with us earlier, but said he was having some internet problems and he disappeared. So hopefully he'll be back. But yes, additions. I am currently working with the 1967 Lancer paperback with the Frank Frazetta cover. What's confusing to me about my edition, though, is on the top, it says volume two of the complete Conan. And in the introduction, Elsprague de Camp says this is going to be book five out of eight. Yet later, this becomes book seven of 12. So I'm not sure how it was book two, five, and seven of four, eight, and 12. Okay, I'm super nerdy and can clear that up for you. Please so. do. I love that. I, I figured one of you would have an answer to this. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, that is the original publication order. So when they started publishing, they didn't have the idea of printing them totally chronologically yet. Um, and so the books came out in that publication. So that was the second Conan book to come out from Lancer. And then, but then they, in that process, they decided they were going to do them chronologically. And so that's why he said it was going to be number five of eight. And then they hadn't written the subsequent volumes that the ones that are just Al Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter, which ultimately adds up to, I think, 13 volumes. So that is the super nerdy triple series order of the Lancer Ace Conans. Awesome. Thank you, Hoy, for coming to the rescue. And uh, Christopher Murray has rejoined us. Oh, sorry about that. Life with uh, raw internet. That's great. Oh, I'm digging the purple hair. I didn't notice that before. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's looking good. So, yeah. Everything but gray. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just discussing which editions of the book we're working with. I'm working with the 1967 Lance, Lance, Lancer paperback. What do you have, Jeremy? Um, I'm using the Del Rey, the Conquering Sword of Conan. So when I first read these stories, I actually mm-hmm. did have um, the original Lancer, Conan the Warrior. I got that at a yard sale back when I was a kid. That's nice. the first I'm using. And actually, one thing that I did is because I was curious how much Elspreg de Camp changed or didn't change, because I've never actually done a, a side-by-side text comparison. I downloaded the audiobook of The Conquering Sword of Conan, and I listened along to those three stories while I read these to see what kind of differences there were. So that, that was a fun way of reading it. Hmm. How about you, Adam? 
got the ace slightly later than yours, I think, Jeff. But Frank Frazetta, Conan, doing his murdering. Yeah, murdering <laughs> atop a giant yeah. pile of picks with, is that maybe the ghost snake that's there too? Yeah, cool thing. Yeah. How about you, Christopher? <clears throat> I've read them uh, in the whatever that that series that came out in the 2000s where they were like the expanded versions. But this time I read them in this omnibus, the Weird Tales. So these are printed as they were in the original magazine with the artwork and stuff, which is sort of neat to see the, uh, you know, the drawings and things that originally accompanied it. Oh, cool. I think these might be public domain versions or something because it's sort of a real cheap, it's falling apart as I'm reading it. But I'd rather this one fall apart than my paperback, which I'm... You know, I don't want to touch. Right. <laughs> and how about you, Hoy? Uh, I was using the Conquering Sword of Conan as well, although I do have both an later Ace copy and a Lancer copy of the uh, Conan the Warrior. So, surprised there's still any Lancers in existence, considering how shoddy they were. Right, right. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's just they were made with uh, I don't know, just a uh, spit and a little chewing gum instead of gl- actual glue. Definitely not love and care, that's for no. certain. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jeremy, you've read a good deal of Conan prior to this, correct? Oh, yes, yes. Um, and Adam, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And Christopher, you just said you have two, yeah, I've dipped in and out. Um, All right, perfect. So, we've got like, a, whole like a lot of people full. probably more familiar with uh. The Roy Thomas comics and the movies, you know, that's mm-hmm. my generation's doorway into these probably. Right, right. Now, I just saw that uh, Paul Piero Press has um, two paperback collections of Roy Thomas's recollections of writing the entire mm-hmm. Conan series, including, you know, what choices he made during the ad- adaptation. So that would be an interesting thing to look at at some point. But Jeff, just because we're not on our regular episode, we should still maybe do our Hygaxian word of the week if you have one. I do. I do. And let me pull that up. Anathematize. Anathematize. And anathematize is on page 23 of my edition. Um, It's actually bottom of 22, top of 23. So she sat on her companion's or captor's knee with a docility that would have amazed Zerillo, who had anathematized her as a she-devil out of hell's seraglio. So anathematized means uh, to have cursed or condemned somebody as something. So that is my candidate for the Hygaxian word of the day. Did any of you have anything you wanted to contribute? No, I'll just say, because you, you used the word, uh, I thought it was pronounced seraglio, but what do I know? Which It might I'll, be. Which you know, is basically seraglio is just the Turkish term for harem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, here, let's, let's, let's find out. Seraglio. Okay. Oh. No, you got it right. I got it right. There we go. Which easily could have been the word for the week as well. And that's, yeah, according to this, it's the women's apartments in an Ottoman palace um, slash harem um, or a Turkish or Ottoman palace, especially a sultan's court. So that is our Hygaxian word of the day. So, yeah, we're discussing Robert E. Howard's Conan the Warrior, and that contains three stories, Red Nails, Jewels of Gwalur, and Beyond the Black River. and, oh. and just for the record, uh, the Jewels of Guadalupe also has an er- alternate title, which is The Servants of Bityakin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think at times it's also called The Teeth of Gwalior as well mm-hmm. in certain um, editions. So I guess, um, Christopher, what did you think of this collection? Mixed bag. Um, there's a lot of Conan I really like, but there's a lot, of, a lot in these three that made me cringe. 
Um, as much as there was a lot of stuff I loved, you know, Red Nails is one of those, it's sort of a classic, but it also has a lot of really uncomfortable cultural uh, baggage to it now. Um, and uh, yeah, there's like issues about colonialism, things I never really thought about until more recently when I've gone through and read these again for the first time in probably 15, 20 years, sort of startling. Um, that, that Howard's voice is coming through at times where it isn't, it isn't about just the texture of the world. I feel like he's trying to say something and it isn't necessarily a good thing at times. So that, that was a bit of a startling revelation, I think, on this time through for me. Yeah, one of my takeaways reading this is I, I felt like this contained the best and the worst elements of any Conan story you could find in all three of these stories. Mm. Like it's, it's, well, before I, before I go on, uh, Adam, what do you think? Oh, I, I enjoyed these stories a lot. Yeah. 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 Especially, especially the last one. The last one was perfect, you know, really. And how about you, Jeremy? What are your overall thoughts? Well, it's hard for me to be objective about this collection because I said this was the first Robert E. Howard I ever read. Um, I was aware, I think, of the Conan movie at the time. I may have read one or two of the comics at the time, but um, I've never read Howard himself up until that point. And when I finally sat down and read it as a kid, it hit me on the head like a, a, like a two-by-four. You know, it was just holy, you know, there was at the time was some of the best uh, adventure fiction, fantasy fiction I'd ever read. It was definitely a big step up over Dragonlands. I'll tell you that much <laughs> um, in quality and in just what I was trying to say. I will admit elements of it have not aged. The beginning of Red Nails is hard to swallow in this day and age. Um, as I've said in the past, you know, the, the whole beginning of it is, well, whole uh, beginning of it is, well, Conan was tired of screwing black women and he wanted some white pussy. That's why yeah. he chased after <laughs> Valeria. There's a reason why there was going to be an animated adaptation of Red Nails uh, 10 years ago. And there was a reason why they changed that be beginning to um, uh, Conan and Valeria, Valeria fleeing from the, the mercenary army. They were part of being destroyed um, by, I don't know, by the Kushites or something like that. But yeah, that's not a good look. At this day and age. Yeah. And there's this whole moment where he's like, not sure if he wants to like rape her or like hold her close and caress her. Um, and like somehow this is like a seeing Conan's rich inner dialogue. I don't know. Uh, Hoy, what did you think of the collection overall though? Right. Um, this I think contains the single greatest Conan story, which is beyond the black river to me. Um, and it's an interesting transition point because it's really based on an actual story of the settlement of Texas, I think the Brazos River or something like that. And so it was interesting if Howard had lived, whether he was going to transition to a more historical fiction. And he was, you know, there is obviously, I mean, it's colonialism, it's literally colonialism, but it's also realizing that what a tragedy that this whole conflict of civilization and barbarity, so-called barbarity is actually becoming um, and that there are no winners in this ultimate yeah, situation. He, he was going to eventually transition over around that time he had broken into Argosy which was one of the big three major pulps that actually paid decent money. Um, and at that point, he was doing these series of comical westerns. Um, Breckenridge Elkins. Yeah, yeah. Breckenridge Elkins. I don't, I, don't actually, I don't know if he was using that character for Argosy, but yeah. he had broken into Argosy, so his career was about to take off when, unfortunately, his demons um, caught up with him. And you know, his friends have said that he was planning on eventually doing um, stories set basically detailing the history of Texas like that. And... Um, mm -hmm. I mean, he was already writing westerns at that point as well and selling them um, well. So 
Uh, we, if he had lived longer, we probably would have lost him at least for a time from the fantasy genre. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting. I did not know that this was inspired by real events. And that makes it makes a lot of sense to me because one of the things that I was thinking while reading this story is the stakes have never felt more real in a Conan story than beyond the Black River. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that moment where he stumbles across the picks who've just murdered this like couple who are traveling through the woods and they're just kind of like dancing over their mutilated corpse. And there's something so powerful about that scene. But also, um, Howard's take on colonialism is interesting um, in this as well, because also, um, I forget who's saying this. Is it Conan who's saying this? Um, yeah, Conan on, on page 161 is saying, this, colonial, this co- colonization business is mad anyway. There's plenty of good land east of the Bassonian marches. If the Aquilonians would cut up some of the biggest states of their barons and plant wheat where the only deer are hunted, there wouldn't they wouldn't have to cross the border and take the lands from the picks from them. Is that Conan saying that? Yeah, I think it, yeah. it was Conan who said yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's something concerning. It's coming from him since you know by thousands of years of history, he absolutely despises the picks. You know? mm-hmm. But but you know, he's calling out. You know, he's you know he's calling us insanity out. Uh, at least what he sees as insanity. Right. Right. That's I think he's sort of, of the needless bloodshed, you know? Right, right. And that is interesting, the sort of complex history of colonialism even in this country and, and our interactions with the Native Americans, because at times we were allied with some tribes, we meaning the colonizing sides, and vice versa, uh, because they were playing off of the various, you know, ancient enmities between, you know, different, you know, Native American nations. Um, so that I, it's never quite clean cut as one, one oh, might yeah. think classic patterns you know romans did that to the gauls and the germans the english did that to the scots and the irishmen mm-hmm. i'm sure all over the place you know you have a big centralized power uh that well outnumbered by four by the people they're against they know how to play their their um, right and even the thrusters. You know, and even the actual settlers are being used and it's kind of makes it quite clear in this story the settlers are being used because they're going to bear the brunt of whatever conflict is happening in the first place. And then later on, the sort of more, you know, uh, investor class, the barons will come in and just, you know, take advantage of all the, the bloodshed that has already happened that occurred. So, well, and there's a, there's like a heavy layer of irony that layers on top of all that, which I think is what really elevates that story out of the, the others in the collection is that Conan himself really probably has more in common with the Picts. Yeah. He has no reason mm-hmm. to be siding with the Aquilonians, but he's sort of motivated by his own self self-interest sort of Nietzschean kind of thing but you're left at the end of the story with him kind of being dismissive of civilization and yet he fought to protect them and and on their side and you're not given any real easy answers of who who really the good guys are and the bad guys right right now one thing never never quite as murky in the other stories the one thing i was um didn't realize when until i read this time that that famous coda you know barbarism is the natural state of mankind yeah civilization is unnatural it is a whim of circumstance barbarism and barbarism must always ultimately triumph it's always presented when people quote uh put it in quotes as if conan says it but it's actually not it's the lone survivor of the fortress who says that looking at conan realizing that conan is the only going to be the, is the ultimate survivor of all these situations so yeah and um it's also worth noting that those are the very last words of this story and of this collection and it does seem to kind of encapsulate Howard's thesis statement about the Conan stories in general. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So Adam, what did you think of uh, particularly beyond the black river? I thought it was like a perfect story. And I really like that. We see it from Balthus's point of view. And that's, a, he does that a lot where 
we we don't like watch we watch Conan from somebody else's point of view, so we get to see him stand out. Yeah, you know, and, and Balthus is force of nature. And right. Balthus is a foil. He's he's pretty competent himself, but Conan, of course, is beyond all of us, as I've mentioned before. And uh, you really see that through his eyes. And I thought that was a great storytelling device, just executed pretty much flawlessly. And, and we get to meet Slasher the dog. Yes, Slasher <laughs> the valiant, the valiant dog. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, and it's and um, I. It's a, it's a bummer that both Balthus and Slasher had to die, but then it was also great that, like, at the very end of the story, Conan's like, I'll have ten heads for Balthus and seven for Slasher. Right. Um, but then it's also funny that he, like, he quantified it to, like, such a specific degree. <laughs> we know exactly how much they're worth. Well, in a sense, because Conan is not... Um, he's vengeful in the moment, but he's not... He's never, like, truly excessive, right? He's, he's not, like, genocidal for the... You know, um, no. and he's, he's not... And he's, you know, he, he revels in battle, but he's not like, um, you know, a killer for killing sake, you know, it, it's oh, there's always thing. a reason he's always got a, a goal in mind and, and a steps to follow. He's not just yeah. a wild, you know, murderer, which is right, right. Yeah, what, what's interesting about him. You know, it just, this seems like weird. And I just thought about this also, but I think I almost feel like Cormac McCarthy read this story before he wrote, um, what's that? He's really famous, like really gruesome Western, um, Blood Meridian. Blood Meridian. Yeah, because again, Blood Meridian also has that weird coda at the end, right? Where you realize that evil will always be on the earth with the judge, right? And and the kid is the lone survivor, right? So my uh, thing that I um that I got from Beyond the Black River that I'd really like to find out more about is the hairy one who lives on the moon. He, he seems he sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> Well, since we were just chatting about Beyond the Black River, let, maybe let's work backwards backwards through this series and talk about Jewels of Gwalor next. Um, Hoy, what did you think of that, that story? Um, that one I did not enjoy as much, although it was still a very solid story. It's it's was pretty similar in a lot of ways to a lot of other ones. You know, he comes upon a a lost city, and you know, there's multiple factions, and um, you know ancient history. I did like the setting though, of this sort of weird bowl, the city exists in this weird bowl and there's different ways in. Um, and, um, I've, I've started noticing a lot again with reading Robert Howard's stories that he also might've been a pretty good crime writer too, because it's always sort of film noir, different factions are all kind of amoral and, you know, they all ultimately get what's coming to them in the end. Uh, although there's no such thing as a good guy as such. Um, so I, I did enjoy it. Just not, it's just not as much as beyond the black river. How about you, Jeremy? Um, it's a, it's a second tier Conan story. Yeah. Um, but again, it, I'm it's sort of hard for me to be objective about it. I, I enjoy it a lot. You know, if it is a second tier Conan story with, you know, none of the themes of our points of interest of red nails or beyond the black river, at least it, it's very good. And it's probably of all three of them, probably the easiest to adapt into an adventure. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. but I guess that's something we can talk about a bit further on. Something uh, that kind of cracked me up about it was the whole, kind of um what is it the, the kind of the scooby-doo slash weekend at bernie's antics that we've got going on here like how many different people can use the corpse of this um un, of this undying dead woman uh, for their own advantage and in in, <laughs> in multiple ways we've got people hiding in the other room speaking right. over her corpse we have other people pretending to be her corpse then we have somebody tying up her corpse in some random room and then shouting from behind her. Right. <laughs> I, I liked mean, I liked the comment if I can f- quickly find it. 
when the dancing girl, uh, Muriella, thank you, was explaining the plot, what was exactly going on with um, Mekri and um, our, his henchmen were doing. Uh, oh, yeah, the things that she that they wanted her to say. Yeah, and, and then and, said that the, the, the priest uh, was not in it. And Conan goes, well, I'm Dan, the priest who honestly believes in his oracle and cannot be bribed. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about it goes pretty much goes again is maybe unique in the Conan saga because most priests are are thieves or liars or, or evil sorcerers. Right, right. <laughs> Adam, what do you think of this of that story? I I enjoyed it. I liked I liked all of them. I thought it was like another like fantastic Conan entrance. You can like see him like the helicopter shot when he's he's climbing up this impassable cliff at the beginning i thought that was like <laughs> brilliant conan entrance but then it turns man. out there's all these other ways into the city too <laughs> he just happened to go the hardest possible way <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, I still thought it was pretty cool oh yeah it's amazing yeah right well, conan never does anything on easy mode right so that's, <laughs> <laughs> he's going the little he wants detail. to unlock all the achievements right as he's climbing the cliff i love that he's passing the mummy and he sees the little scroll tucked in the waist and he just grabs it and passes on by doesn't stop and really pay attention he is just like midway through just have that on his way <laughs> right right but he does do his read languages role later right and then uh, does this 80 percent and and is able to decipher it you know over time <laughs> um, I still like it has a one of the single creepiest moments in any of these stories, which is when he sees Sargiba's face and then only slowly oh, realizes yeah. it's just a suspended head and that the body's missing, you know, <laughs> just pale face peeking out of the leaves. Well, so in, in good swords and sorcery, there's as much horror as there is swashbuckling adventure. Mm-hmm. You know? Indeed, and that's definitely comes to the fore in the in Red Nails too as well. When we get to that, oh, Red Nails, yeah, gee, yeah. yeah, and um, the slaughter of the priests. Oh my God, that was. That's still very hard. Howard was not pulling any punches when he when he described just what the servants were doing to those priests mm-hmm. once they yeah. finally decided to stop hiding. And um, also like the description when um, um, the thing had uh, that last servant had grabbed the uh, the girl and the jewels and was um, moving away, but Conan slashed it. And you know he had a horrible vitality, but he seemed to start slowing down like a clockwork winding down. That was a, I liked that description of um, of you know you know the thing's dying, but it's not really noticing it's dying. Right, it's not going until it just finally falls over. And then in the end of the story, we have that moment where he's on the cliff's edge, and both uh, Muriella and the chest are about to fall. Uh, and he has to choose between one or the other. And in his Sophie's choice, he saves Muriella. He was like, why'd you save me? You could have saved all that gold. And he's like, yeah, I'm not really sure if I made the right choice. She's like, <laughs> oh. and, she, and she kind of agrees with them too. She's like, I would have taken the gold. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and also in this story, again, you get some sense for like, actually, again, how intelligent Conan is. I mean, A, he figures out this scroll from this dead language and connects it with these other languages, right? Yeah. And he sort of also reasons out how, what the servants of Yakin are before he even sees them and how they've managed to survive. He says, oh, you know, up this way, there's this river, and that's where the Puntish, you know, toss in the corpses of their dead. And there must be a tributary, and that fish these things out of there and eat them, you know. And so, well, and then in taking that to be on the Black River, that reminds yeah. me of how while he's wandering through the jungle, he um, knows this whole thing about Jebel Sog and how yeah. Jebel Sog is this god that was once worshipped by all living beings, but most people have forgotten him. But he like has seen like these like symbols that you know, the priests of Jebel Sag have drawn. So he's able to recreate that. And it's interesting because like, you know, the more you read Conan, the more it's clear that he's not 
the idiotic barbarian that like kind of modern um, modern audiences think he is. Right, right. And as well, very well parodying the, the Gru comics, if you've ever read those, mm-hmm. the Sergio Aragon. <laughs> I, I have not eaten since my last meal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mendicant. <laughs> so. Well, then working our way back to the beginning with Red Nails, I guess the first big question is, what do you guys think of Valeria of the Red Brotherhood? Um, have, let's start with you, Adam. Um, formidable in her own right, I guess, would be w- one way to say it. Yeah, you know, not not up to Conan's level because nobody is, as we've mentioned. Yeah. But uh, formidable in her own right, and they've got some weird, like, uh, kind of S and M stuff going on with her and the uh, servant of the uh, leader Trustila. of the city. Yeah. yeah, there's some naked whipping going on. Oh yeah, right. Tesla and Yasala. I was shooting for the cover. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. like shooting for that Margaret Brundage cover. Yep. Right, yeah. And he yes. So, uh, pretty, pretty interesting character, I thought. And Jeremy, what do you think of um, Valeria? In any other Howard story that he wrote around that time, Valeria would have been the lead. Um, but as you said, she has the misfortune of being a Conan in a Conan story. And Conan at this point is superhuman. You know, um, you see that with Balthus, who is a lot more of a normal, normal average character than Valeria is. And you definitely see it with Valeria where he can do, you know, basically do pretty much anything Valeria can do, but better. But, you know, and it, it's sort of a shame that Valeria is sort of sidelined in that because, you know, a story about herself probably would have been great because Howard has written, there's at least three stories that I'm aware of where he has basically kick-ass female characters that are the lead and are a lot smarter than any man around them. There's, um... The Shadow of the Vulture with Red Sonia, not the Chief right. of the Chainmail Bikini. Right. It was a historical adventure set on um, the Siege of Vienna in the 1500s. And she, I mean, she stole the story. You know, she was smarter than the male lead, which was this drunken knight. Uh, she saves the male lead. I'm amazed that Farnsworth Wright accepted the story because she was, basically, she was the protagonist mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And he wrote two, two stories in a fragment about a character named Dark Agnes, a uh, French swordswoman. And he couldn't sell them because the uh, editors of the Adventure Pulps at the time would not accept a woman character who could fight better than any of the men in the stories who didn't need to be rescued or saved to find them in. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's a shame that Conan is basically exemplar of what people know about Howard. Because um, I think I've mentioned before, Conan's his most, the most commercial of his adventures of his weird fiction. And that's, you know, the love interests and the whippings and things like that. And uh, when, in all honesty, he wasn't as much of a sexist as a lot of people portray him for. He was just servicing what the editors want. He wanted the extra money for the covers. He was sort of, he was rather cynical about it too, I believe, in some of, some of his letters. You know, I think he commented sort of in disgust that, you know, the average Joe reader loves to fantasize himself as a violent raping swashbuckler. And, um, and you know, he, you know, like I said, he, the, the tone of that notice didn't really seem to be very laudatory. He wasn't that impressed, but he wanted right. to make a living. He wanted to make money. And right, so right. that's how he tailored Conan for the Weird Tales market. Right. And to expand on that point a little bit, you know, we always think, you know, we lump him in as the Weird Tales big three with Clark Dash and Smith and, and Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. But uh, Howard is in many ways very, very practical. Like he would definitely rewrite stories that were created originally for other characters. I mean, there was at least one Conan story that was originally a call story. Yep. There was a, a you know, a Conan story that becomes later a, a Terrence Falmea story. Yeah, which I didn't right. sell either. You're going to get that to the next book. 
right? Uh, um, so that he was, he was a, he, he was a, you know, he's a professional working writer. You know, he sort of understood, and, and to a certain extent, yes, he was writing to a market, right? So, I think he was more aware of market pressures than Clark Ashton Smith or Lovecraft were, in a way. Yeah. Well, Smith, Smith was fairly pragmatic himself, but perhaps not to the extent of um, of Howard. I mean, Smith right. would rewrite when he was directed to. Lovecraft was not practical at all, and I guess right. for some critics, that makes him the the greatest of the greatest artist of the three. I mean, I don't know. I'm not willing to say any of them are better than each other. Each of them did had their particular focus, the which thing, they right. sell that. I, right. I as much as I love Howard, I would not say he's better a better writer than Smith or Lovecraft. Just I wouldn't say Lovecraft's a better writer than Smith and Howard, and then, you know, et cetera, right. et cetera. Well, they all have their strengths, and certainly what would be the strength that Howard most possesses is yeah, in the creation and depiction of character over the other two, I think. Um, and then taking this back to Valeria and kind of what we were discussing to her earlier, like I do feel like this is, for the genre, a huge step in the right direction, you know, because here we have Valeria, who is like an incredibly capable, she's sexy, she's powerful, she's ferocious, um, men fear her. Uh, they write. They she her her deeds are celebrated and in song and ballad. No man can disarm her. We're told again and again just how incredibly ferocious and powerful she is, while also talking about how sexy she is, which is fine. You can be sexy and powerful. Conan is sexy and powerful. Um, women love love looking at Conan. Men love looking at uh, Valeria. All that's fine. What, what uh, but then, not, what you may not know, Conan. Um, was very popular with the female readers in Weird Tales. Okay. You know, it's... Uh, but then know. also in the text itself, we also have all these moments where, like, the text does seem to kind of take away from that as well, though. Yeah. Like, here we've got, you know, we're, we're told that she's also incredibly fast, yet as they're running through the jungle, Conan lifts her up and carries her through the jungle because he's faster carrying her than having to slow down to her catching up with him which somehow really kind of, I think, detracts a lot from her heroism. And then there's also this moment near the end of the story where it says, yet all of her, yet with all of the strength of her magnificent body availed her nothing against Olmec's brute strength. So here, like, Olmec isn't even some great, like, powerful protagonist. It's not like Conan. He's just like a dude in the story. But even like she can't fight off his overpowering strength. So like we had this incredible character but it's also kind of constantly nerfed throughout the story right. well annoying. Right. I, I find that hard to agree with, disagree with. As I said, he, she has the, any other Howard story at the time, she would have been the lead mm-hmm. far ahead of any male character, but she had the misfortune of being... Be, being in a Conan story. In a yeah. Conan story. So know. a huge step in the right direction, um, but still, you know, definitely problems with Valeria overall. Right. And also, also like... was described as being very powerful in and home of, of himself. So. In fact, sort of pre-human, so that sort of justifies, yeah. right? Because they were, there was that okay. scene where both Olmec and Conan are standing side by side. Yeah. And, and he's decided almost like as a pre And the one thing he did say, which is kind of interesting and practical about Valeria was that she's this pirate, right? So yeah. pirates and the whole thing about like, you know, they're not, they don't sprint. They're not used to like traveling on land and, and sprinting and running. And she's, you know, she's wearing these pirate boots that are not practical for the situation. So there is that nerfing because you're dealing with, oh, it's Conan. Right. And again, I think it's more because she's in a Conan story, like Jeremy says, than the fact that she is somehow herself ultimately yeah. weak, weak. And then also throughout Red Nails and Jewels of uh, Gwalor, um, Conan is constantly shouting out, slut, hussy, trollop. 
yeah. at all of these like various female characters, including Valeria. Um, so that's also something that's yeah. interesting to kind of experience. It's like, why do you need to <laughs> keep calling them these things? Because he's an angry asshole. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yep, right. yep. Onan's uh, going to have to go to HR and get right, a talking right. to. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but so f- t- discussing Red Nails from like a story perspective, what did you guys think of Red Nails? Ooh, boy. Apocalyptic. That's yeah. the word I mean, that always pops yeah. up when I think about that. Um, I, I think I, I, it's, it's one of the top tier stories. It's a very good argument. Maybe it's the best of what he wrote, at least up there with Beyond the Black River. Mm-hmm. Um, just the themes of deckness and bloodshed and hate. You know, hate hate is a theme that he Howard goes goes back to over and over again in his writings um, because he hated a lot. I'm afraid he was he was very angry a lot of the time. Um, and I, I've also heard read articles and whatnot. This was uh, supposed to be one of his takes on the various really bloody Texas feuds, um, from the, the various before. clans, right? The various uh, settling clans, yeah. And so. Um, just like I said, in just it, it's such a creepy environment, and just wow, right? You know, it, it, it's basically, and you know, again, maybe I'm biased. It's the first because I, I, you know, I first read Conan the War in in the you know the Order Red Nails, Jewels, and Beyond the Black River. So maybe I'm biased because that was the very first exposure to Conan I ever had, and there's a lot worse exposures you can have than Red Nails. Yeah, and I, I think it's. Uh, you know, unless you want something, you know, you bounce off it because of the length. It's almost a perfect first story to read. And, you know, if, yeah. I mean, I think our first story I read was probably Rogues in the House, you know, as a kid. Yeah, that'd be a good uh, That or Tower yeah. Bill would probably be the best places to start. Yeah, yeah, those are really fun adventure stories. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Th- those ones, are, I think, are great places yeah, to but, start. Like yeah. I said, I, I Red Nails, yeah, the, the beginning has definitely not aged well. I feel sort of like a hypocrite even saying that because maybe even as early as five years ago, I don't think I would have even noticed. And I feel sort of hypocritical. The world's changing fast. The world is changing fast. There's a lot of things that I was comfortable with 10 years ago that I would not be comfortable with now. You know, Um, I think as, as, as technology is making us all closer to one another, I think we're also all realizing uh, I'm becoming kind of more aware of the ways that like language we use and, and, and art that we consume has effects on other people's Mm. um, experiences I don't know. So, um, Adam, what did you think of Red Nails? Oh, I thought it was really like you guys. It's good, grim, man. Yeah, it is like so violent. The stuff about them, you know, throwing the limbs of the people up against the door, yeah, you know, and all that stuff. It was just like holy cow, just just slightly violent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this made me think of. Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say one thing I would love to chat about before we go over to the gaming side is this theme that was coming up a lot in both Red Nails and Jewels of Gwalor, which is this theme of um, uh, of whiteness becoming degenerated and um, and and people becoming these kind of um, what is the word I'm looking for um, mon not mongoloid. Uh, what is the word I'm looking Mong- for? Mongrels. Mongrelized. Mongrel. Yes, yeah. mongrelized. Thank you. Um, of like these like mongrelized races that are like returning back to these kind of like primal forms. And also it seemed to be kind of playing into potentially this like fear that white people may have been having at the time that they were going to lose their whiteness as they were... Fear st- that people were still having. Of- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's still like the... Yeah, exactly. Like the uh, whiteness is a very fragile thing that if you 
pollute it with any amount of uh, blood from another race. You are no longer white and your whiteness has disappeared. That that seems to uh, be like a common theme in these two stories. The the hideous one drop rule um, that they self-enforced. One one drop of black blood. You're horrible. And um, actually makes me, there was another writer, um, uh, Henry S. Whitehead. I don't know if you've heard of him. He, um, he was a very interesting man. He wrote stories about the West Indies, which he actually lived in, was the archdeacon of the West American West Indies for like 10 years. Um, and he wrote a story called Jumby, where this white Virginian is talking to this upper class uh, man of the West Indies who was a quarter black, uh, but was in the West Indies, he treated with great respect. But in Virginia, despite all his money and entertainment, you know, educated in Europe, you know, uh, has a coat of arms dating back hundreds of years, we've been treated like garbage. Yeah. Just because, right. You know, and also I just wanted to point out, I, um, in, I mean, I don't know if Howard meant it, but it's, uh, there's a line in Beyond the Black River, which sort of points out the hypocrisy of whiteness, how it can be shift, shifted around for the benefit right. of the ruling class. I think know? I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I'm going to just quote a bit. The demon isn't even going to get Tiberius's head if I can help it, he, he growled Conan. Uh, we'll carry the body into the fort. It isn't more than three miles. I never liked the fat bastard, but we can't have Pictish devils uh, make me so curse-free with white men's heads. Uh, the Picts were a white race, though swarthy, but the bordermen never spoke of them as such. Um, yeah. You know, I don't, I mean, I honestly, you know, but Howard's proud of his Irish, of his Irish heritage, and for the longest time, Irish were not considered white. That's true. Irish, Irish and Italians were not, right. were considered like lesser white people to the point yeah. where like many didn't consider them to be white. I think Howard is pretty, he's interesting, he's, he's caught in an interesting bind because he's in a very rough and tumble environment of, uh, I don't know, like West Texas, East Texas, uh, yeah. whatever part of Texas he was growing up in. Ass end of uh, Texas. Like yeah, ass end of Texas. But he has this historical sense, self-taught largely, but of, of everything being contingent, civilization being contingent, race being contingent, um, you know, whatever, whoever is the victor, that's completely contingent. Yeah. Right. And so he understands all, all this contingency. And again, had he lived, you know, a normal, healthy lifespan, he would have lived into the civil civil rights period and, and further. And, you know, the beginning of the, you know, uh, the equal rights, uh, you know, period. And it would be interesting to see what how he would have developed over the course of time as a writer. I mean, I, I think if we look at any writer, contemporary writer of his and, and trace their whole length of their career, you would see some very you know, dramatic changes as well. Um, it would have been interesting to see both him and Lovecraft had they had longer lifespans. What would have happened with them had they continued? Right, right. Because right, Lovecraft was quite young too. People always think of him as this old man, but he was only like thirty nine, right? Or yeah, he just looked forties. He's like yeah, I think he's like ten, ten years older. Right, ten or fifteen years older. So I think he died when he was forty seven. Right. I mean, he would have had to have those major collisions with modernity after, you know, the atomic bomb and World War II yeah. and all that stuff and have you yeah. reckon with all that stuff. And he might have just stayed the same or gotten worse, but still, it would have been interesting to see what would happen with him. Oh, absolutely. Know. Yeah. yeah. So I, give, I give Howard more credit for being uh, flexible and broad-minded enough to, to change a little bit than, oh, than Lovecraft. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Because Lovecraft yeah. was pretty awful. Oh, yeah. Lovecraft was, I love his writing. He was yeah. bad. Oh, yeah. absolutely. As I think I mentioned last time we talked about Conan and um, uh, the, the last book, I mean, Howard could occasionally play fair with minority characters. You know, mm-hmm. he could acknowledge that, yeah, maybe minorities have a good reason for hating whites. Right, right. Uh, but um, I, I sort of feel odd about trying to say, because um, a couple of years ago, um, a couple of years ago when the first big push against Lovecraft started to happen, I remember S.C. Joshi 
writing his blog, saying people were a lot worse than than Lovecraft. And he said Howard was a lot worse. He was a monstrous racist compared to Lovecraft. And I thought, you've got to be shitting me. No, he's yeah, definitely no. wrong on that. Yeah, look, look at Lovecraft Lovecraft's poetry, and you will see very clearly. Oh, yeah. Right, right. And, and, and Lovecraft, in one letter to Howard, which I've read, suggested that maybe um, reestablishing the franchise of slavery could be a good thing and maybe extending it to to not only blacks, but to Latinos, Jews, and, and East, uh, East European. Yeah. You know, but then yeah. again, I, I still feel ridiculous you know, saying, oh, he was less racist. You know, Howard was less racist than Lovecraft. I feel faintly ridiculous trying to defend that because it's like, uh, well, this guy beats his wife less than this guy. You know, it's sure. not a good look. I, I think, do. yeah, no, I mean, what Howard has is a certain understanding, even if it's not fully articulated, yeah. about the consequences, like in Pigeons from Hell, um, I mean, certainly here, Red Nails, right? I mean, we're talking about the consequences of the hatred, how it actually devolves a person who is the hater as much as the object of their hate. Well, and right? Howard can see the humanity in all people where I don't think Lovecraft did. I think Lovecraft literally thought that he and people like him were the only ones with humanity and everybody else was inhuman. Yes, I don't want to spend too much on, on, on just the, the, the literary side of this. So let's move right. this over to the gaming conversation. Right, right. And... I'm curious if there's stuff from this from these stories that you would like to steal for your games. And I would love to start this time. And I'm going to say, when Tomek appears with his laser beam pomegranate wand, I'm like, I want that laser beam pomegranate wand in my game so bad. So I'm going to be putting that into my OSE game. Right, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think you, you have to have that magnified effect, too, where someone's in line with some other objects, like, you know, whether it's like metal or this altar that, you know, it doubles the effect or something like that. You know? <laughs> um, I mean, the whole setting of Red Nails, the whole city is a mega dungeon, right? Yes. It's, it's the, yes. the dark, grim version, whereas the, um, the Lords of Quarmall is the, the humorous, the slightly more humorous version, you know, the Fritz yeah. Um And so it's a perfect setting, right? There's like multiple levels. You could, you know, you could say this is the original uh, Jack Wade dungeon. Right, because people are coming in from different directions, all yes, different yeah. entrances. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll say it right out. I, I mean, I, I believe Zoltrol was probably more of an influence on the on Gary's ideas of Mega Dungeon Moria ever was. Yeah, you yeah. know, uh, it had traps. I mean, oh, a hundred percent traps, factions. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we had the, we had the 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 clawed bear traps. We had the giant stone block that like nearly crushed Conan. Right. You know, all sorts of secret passageways, you know, yeah, yeah, the whole, and, the whole you know, And again, you know, different areas. I mean, uh, besides those four levels, you have the catacombs, which yeah. they bury the dead, but also is filled with basically the dark evil secrets of the magicians of, uh, of Zoltuch, you yeah. know, which, uh, the, you know, uh, at least one or two sides were able to take advantage of and, you know, horrible monsters, the crawler, the yeah. crawler was creepy. Right. The and original dragon love- creature, you know, and oh, then just, yeah, yeah. And I love that the hallways were filled with these like little glowing green stones. So like you could see through most of the halls, but occasionally Conan would walk past like a doorway that just looked into like a gulf of darkness. And he was like, nope, (laughs) (laughs) not going in there. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, And Alchemon too is also a very good mega dungeon. If you think about it from Jules of uh, Gwalior. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both of them. I mean, mean, it, it, it was a recurring theme with Howard. I mean, uh, Zulful of the Dusk, uh, The Slithering Shadow, was uh, in a lot of ways a dry run, at least for the setting for Red Nails. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know he, you know he did, and he did that, uh, you know, two or three times better at the very least with Red Nails. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, The the city in The Slithering Shadow just 
in comparison, is nowhere near as interesting. Right, right. I, and, you know, and taking it to um, beyond the Black River, that's sort of a bounded hex crawl, right? There's, mm. there's, because there's these swamps that keep them from going too far. So it's like, you know, it's a mini hex crawl environment or campaign environment. You can go here, you can go there. You know, there's the fortress, you can go look at the different pick camp. You get, in particular, that story is very strong in the sense of you know where things are in relation to each other. Mm-hmm. And so that, that has, gives it, it's a really, the thing again that I think Jeff, you were mentioning, that gives it that sense of reality that some of the other stories might don't might not have. Yeah, totally. And we also have uh, Robert E. Howard awarding his players for creative play. You yeah. know, it's like Conan is uh, stuck up on this cliff with Valyria fighting off this dinosaur uh, T-Rex dragon. Um, and there's no way that they're going to be able to kill this thing. Their weapons can't even pierce its hide. But then here are the apples of Darketo, which are these like horribly poisonous apples. And they use that to slay the, uh, the T-Rex by getting the spear into the apples and then tossing the spear into, was it its eye, its mouth? I don't know. Jaw, into its in mouth. Jaw, yeah, the mouth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, some fleshy bit. Yeah. Oh, something uh, I want to point out that you see in a lot of the stories, but it really jumped out to me. Um, reading these three stories is that the idea yet Conan's a protagonist and a lot of things revolve around him, but there's also always these mentions and hints that there's a larger world going on around Howard, around um, Conan, like the mention of the, the, the Stygian adventurer on uh, Thukmakri who comes to basically spoil his plans and the jewels of uh, Gualar and the mentions of, of Zaro, uh, Zararo, the, 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 the general of the mercenary band that Valer was chased out of. Right. Uh, his reasons there. He, he does it a lot, but for some reason it really jumped out to me in this time um, that, you know, yeah, Conan is the main mover and shaker in the stories, but there's a lot, a lot of other things going on around. He, Howard's always dropping these hints, these other names, you know, people who have their own agendas that have uh, nothing to do with Conan. Actually, they don't give a damn about Conan, but they're, they're in the world. I, probably the biggest, uh, the big, biggest example of that is Thothamon. Right. Um, who basically the camp made the big bad, but in all honesty, in the, uh, he only appears in one story. In the other two stories, he doesn't know who Conan is. And he doesn't give a fuck about Conan. He has his <laughs> own black wizardry that he wants to do. He doesn't care about some barbarian from the northern hinterlands, you know? Right, right. And Thothamon's been around thousands of years since like, the age of Cull, right? And yeah. <laughs> uh, not that old as far as right. I know. <laughs> but yeah, he's, you know, he, has, he has better things to do than dealing with some upstart, you know? Right, yeah. right. And it's interesting because um, oftentimes the reader has more awareness of the overall universe than the characters do. Mm-hmm. But in Conan, it's the opposite because there's even the scene where Conan's talking about how he's been north of Samaria. He's been further south past the Black, uh, past the black nations of Kush. He's been further to the east and the Eastlands. But in the stories, we don't know of anything north of Samaria. We don't know anything south of Kush. Like these are the furthest right. that we, the readers, know of. But Conan has even been beyond those. Like he even right. knows what's up beyond those places. Well, well hell, um, he's even been across the Western Ocean to the uh, to the basically America. Yep, yep. Uh, if you read that letter from uh, Howard wrote to um, uh, I can't remember his name. He was he basically was the man. Uh, he and a friend of his, Doctor Clark came uh, in my whatever he came they came up with a map that uh, actually came very close to howard's map and howard wrote about some of the things that you know he didn't think was ever going to get to but you know he said yeah he, they actually conan actually roamed across the ocean to the and i believe he crossed the eastern way because even in this story he says i've been to the continent east of um uh, beyond the eastern sea right. yeah, i don't remember that but I, i'll take your word for it you know yeah. he's been as far east as uh, basically katai china china yeah Oh, and one thing I will, because I I mentioned this earlier, that I was listening along with the story. Mm -hmm. Elspeth de Camp changed almost nothing. 
like the only things I encountered throughout the entire thing was occasionally a word would be changed. Like the word feud was changed to battle. And at one point, um, uh, Conan, uh, I'm sorry, Howard had said like he skirted the river and then Elspray to Camp changed it to he swam the river. Right, right. I, I, I did not encounter a single edit that was more than a single word being swapped. Right, out. right. I mean, he wouldn't have needed to because these were actually published. The other ones that he really went to town on were the ones that were like partial or fragments mm-hmm. or, you know, had been or, or maybe even were complete or were unpublished. The, so he the would black, need, the, yeah. the black stranger is the worst he did. Um, yeah. He trained it to treasure. Tra- actually, his his change may have been why it's it sank the story with so many critics because blacks, the black stranger, which you'll, you'll get to, you know, the next book. Uh, it has a mixed reputation. Some people think it's a first-tier Conan story up there with Beyond the Black River. Um, actually, it's probably closer in quality to um, People of the Black Circle with the plot, plotting and counterplotting. And other critics say it's it's down there with The Veil of Lost Women. Yeah, which is really bad. <laughs> yeah. I, I personally right. think it's a first-tier story, but yeah. that shows yeah. you just how, how badly maybe that first impression of how, of, of DeCamp's rewriting cooked the story with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, and again, DeCamp is just never playing to his strengths. I mean, I, I, I admire a lot of the stuff that he did. And, and, but for someone who is so, had so much power over the franchise, it just seems to me like he so fundamentally was not in tune with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that it just oh. kind of you know, amazing. Uh, well, and the I mean, more like Ellsberg DeCamp I read, that's not him writing with another author and it's not him writing in the Conan universe the more I feel like I'm discovering he is less and less qualified to be doing Conan. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he honestly liked the franchise, but a lot of it was, well, it made him a very prosperous man. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not quite certain, but you know what? If Foundation made Asimov a millionaire, I have no doubts that the camp was a millionaire from Conan before he died. Right. I mean, he had had a lot of money from the movie rights too, right? Because he he was basically control that and all the the Conan light writers were basically had to run their stuff through him, as I recall, other than the ones that were going through the sort of, um, you know, Glenn Lord's route. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously Tolkien is responsible for making fantasy for adult audiences the most popular in this century. But I think second to Tolkien, I would say that perhaps Elsbrig de Camp indirectly can be most credited for bringing Conan back into popular fiction because Conan is perhaps the second most popular um, hero in adult fantasy fiction prior to it becoming hugely popular again. Yeah, they're, 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 I mean, they're both, I mean, they're probably the, uh, two pillars of modern fantasy fiction. I, I, I forget where I saw it, but I, I've heard that the, the four most important voices in modern fantasy fiction, or at least this is from 23 years ago, were Tolkien, Howard, Liber, and hold on, Tolkien, Liber, Howard, and, um, Moorcock, duh, Moorcock. Mm. Those, those, those are basically, the, those four writers have had the most influence, at least when I was a kid, when I read that, up until like the 80s and 90s, they were the most influential writers in fantasy. Everyone owed something to one of those four right. writers. And I would say that that's still accurate, that, but I think that Liber's influence is not, I mean, people may not refer to him as much because he's just not in people's consciousness in the way that Howard and Tolkien and more cock still because uh, especially with any of the, the British fans, yeah. like, wow, sure. you know, a lot of people would put more cock ahead of Tolkien or, or, you know, but there's no that. doubt that Conan's yeah. fame is significantly more so than even Elric's and Elric's fame is significantly more so than Thafford and the gray mouser. Which is a shame yeah. because there's a lot of, I mean, a lot, I, I think I told you, I, I wasn't too high on Liber when I was a kid, but 
eventually I, I reread some of his horror stories and he finally clicked with me. And I really love Liber mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah, I'm excited that I'm about to start reading some non Nawonian uh, Liber because so far that's all I've read of Liber. Mm-hmm. Well, we're starting to, um, I mean, we've, we, we started a little bit late, so we probably still have a few minutes left, but uh, maybe we can go ahead and dive into some kind of final thoughts here. Um, Adam, were there any, did you have any thoughts about any of these three stories you really wanted to chat about before we wrap up? Oh, not really. I, I, one thing, I really like Slasher. Yeah. He was a cool, he was a cool side dog. character. He was a good dog. Good boy. <laughs> yes, he was. He was a good boy. Yeah. Oh, good boy who could tear out throats. You know, yep. <laughs> yeah. Hey, sometimes that's what a good boy's got to do. Yep. <laughs> Don't have and, too many final thoughts, but I just wanted to ask you, Jeff. Um, so what did you think of Conan actually casting a spell? Because I remember when I, I mentioned that the last time we talked about Conan, I, I, I seemed to have blown your mind when I told you that. Wait, is this? Wait, when is this? With when he the, carves the, the thing through? in uh, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. okay yeah, yeah yeah so um perfect so i um i don't know that i would have called that casting a spell i would say that that's more he 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 drew a symbol that these things recognize as being holy um but i did think that was really interesting um and i also thought it was interesting that like then because of that the ramifications of yeah. drawing this symbol when he is not a priest of this being yes. uh, then like had all these like creatures coming after him um i like that there was a, a fucking word i'm looking for consequence yeah, yeah. I hate when yeah. i lose a really basic word yeah uh, right. there were consequences to his action right. in dnd that wouldn't be a spell but in rune quest or a rune que- you know rune quest based system call of cthulhu that would have been a spell yeah. so he yeah, did that's cast- a good point you know, or GURPS for that matter. So that I was didn't a spell. look at it as a spell in the moment, but yeah. now that you're saying it that way, I can easily see why that could be an, uh, another take on what happened there. Yeah, Mongoose Conan D20 uh, treated it as a spell. I, I think I mentioned um, they had a feat, basically. So if you wanted to be able to do a thing like what Conan did that, you could take it. You weren't a full scholar, but you could cast the occasional spell like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, also, it sort of goes to show you that D&D is, for all its qualities, isn't really in some ways a good fit for this sort of fiction. No. Um, just, you know, you look at uh, God Saving Gods and Heroes, how many multi, how many illegal multi-classes did Ford or yeah. the Great Mouse or Alark had to have to basically right. emulate the character from the story? Right, right. You know, uh, yeah, whatever. I think, I think uh, yeah, D&D as written is not. I think people are definitely, you know, hacking away now and, and starting to deal with like classless D&D, especially, mm. you know, I think, AD&D in particular is harder harder to hack than you know BX or OD&D yeah. in that regard. Um, yeah, and uh, I went and ahead and highlighted a, a couple portions of that whole little scene. And yeah, it says, um, Conan turned, scratching a curious symbol in the mold. Uh, what is that? Whispered Balthus. And he says, I saw it carved in the rock of a cave no human had visited in a million years. Later, I saw a black witch finder of Kush scratch it in the sand. It's sacred to Jebel Sag and the creatures who worship him. Watch. And then a magnificent black panther came into view. It halted as if frozen and laid its head on the ground before the mark. And then the panther rose and backed away carefully and was gone like a flash of dappled light. There you go. Yeah. So good. 
All right. Yeah. yeah. So my quick self-correction earlier, I was confusing Thothamon with False of Doom briefly oh, for a second. I didn't think Thothamon was that ancient. I yeah, thought no, False of Doom I, is immortal, essentially. I was going to say, that was once he got yeah. that, that serpent yeah. ring that he became yeah. super cool, but I didn't yeah. want to argue with you. I wasn't yeah, yeah. sure. You yeah. know, it, it, until I, I heard about Co- about um, Gardner Fox using the term Lich, I, I swore that Gary got the idea for the Lich from False of Doom. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, those would be a lot of fun when we read the call stories because he, he's sort of a prototype, but he's actually quite different from Conan in his own way, too. Oh, so yeah. That's, that's One thing good. he says sexual. Yeah. He, he does not say his tail. Yeah. Back to Conan, right. And it's a good question whether, well, I mean, when we'll get to it, when we get to it, but it is a good question to, uh, then back to the point of how much uh, Howard was writing for the cover or writing for his mm. perceived and known audience when he was writing the Conan stories, whereas the Cole ones were sort of before he had sold the stories. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also you can be, you can be close third person narrative where it's still, you know, third person, but you're still seeing the world world through the lens of kind of your main character. So I can see that maybe, you know, the misogyny that we see in the writing in the Conan stories might be because Howard is kind of funneling the mindset of Conan while he's writing these stories. So it would be interesting to go and read the Cole stories where you're saying he he does not look at other human beings as sex objects at all to see if that kind of messaging is still kind of woven into the text or not. That's an that's interesting thought. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, just refresh my memory. Are you guys going to do Solomon Kane as well? I can't remember. We are. Yes, we're going to we do Solomon yeah. Kane, and we'll, we'll do be one doing Solomon Kane uh, collection. I love and Bram, Bram McMorran, I believe as well. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not doing Cormac McArt though, who is. No, um, I think. I don't know like, if any what, of those were published stories. in his lifetime, and plus they weren't really. Those were historical adventures, um, yeah. at least the ones he wrote. Actually, I've never read Cormac McArt. That's a big gap in my Howard reading, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, he's sort of interwoven with like some of the other some of the other characters, but we'll definitely begin to Brand McMorn, who's who's cool. terrific. And, yeah, and Solomon Kane, King Cole, Brand McMorn, Almeric, Pigeons from Hell. Those yeah. are the stories. Those are the books we'll be reading that are cool. outside of the Conan sphere. Uh, look forward to all of them, except for Almeric. I read that. I'm. It probably <laughs> could have used a couple more passes. <laughs> um, you can tell it was a rough draft. Well, gang, this has been fun. Christopher Murray, you dropped out of the call at some point. I know you're having uh, internet issues. It was really fun having you on, even though it was pretty brief. Hopefully, we'll have you on again soon. Thank you, yeah. Jeremy. Thank you, Adam. And uh, uh, I didn't talk too much. I'm sorry <laughs> if I did. <laughs> it's fine. And yeah. Hoy, um, can you go ahead and let folks know where they can find us? Yeah, so uh, if you like us, uh, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. You can give us some feedback at... at um, Appendix N Book Club at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at Appendix underscore N. And you can find us on MeWe and Facebook as well. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? So you can go to Appendix N Book Club. Dot com. No, that's not right. You can go to <laughs> patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support there. Uh, our patrons are able to join us before episodes to hang out with us and chat about the books. And what you are hearing today is a wonderful example of just that. Uh, we would also like to give a shout out to a few of our show's patrons. Thank you to Demo Saklas, Ray, Andrew Cairns, Thomas Edward, Adrian Romero, Noah Green, Adam Alexander, and Christopher Murray. Thank you for your support. And Jeremy Harper and Adam Stiers, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. Nice to talk to you guys again. See you for the ship of star in two weeks. Cool. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.